peacemakers. That's, that's a mandate, clearly. That's something, you know, Jesus specifically said that peacemakers were going to be blessed. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus himself is called the Prince of Peace. And when the angels appeared at Jesus' birth, you know, the song that they sang was that, you know, there was going to be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's what makes the text that we're going to read today so jarring because it's going to sound counterintuitive to all of that stuff, to this Jesus way of life that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Luke and that we see (laughs) represented all through the the whole New Testament. And if you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you'd like to follow along this morning, if you'll find your way to Luke chapter 12, please. Uh, We've been in Luke chapter 12 for a month now, (laughs) but we're finally getting out of it today. Uh, We're in a section of our study where the language has taken a turn for the harsh. Uh, uh, And honestly, this is a place where it gets difficult for someone like me who's committed to teaching through a whole book at a time because it'd be nice to skip like this section or last week's section and just get to the stuff we enjoy. But if we want the whole counsel of God, we have to look squarely and honestly at what is here before us, at these difficult passages. And we're going to see how the Holy Spirit is going to guide us and lead us through this in understanding it. So last week we read Jesus's warnings about living ready for the end. And we said that can that can either be his return or our demise. Either way, it's an end. And we considered that living ready meant doing what he called us to do, faithfully and daily, to be the people that he's called us to be, to embody the values of the kingdom in in the world in which we live. Today, the heat is really going to get turned up, and you'll see soon. That's a pun. That was for you, Blake. Uh, But if someone in a group of people jumps up and yells fire, that's going to create a stir one way or the other. I mean, like if somebody were to do that here, jump up, yell fire, I'm pretty sure everybody would start scrambling for the exits that they could find. By the way, the exits are here and over there and over here. But if we were, if we were in a frozen wasteland somewhere and we were all freezing to death, to hear someone shout fire would have a completely different meaning to it. We'd suddenly think in terms of rescue, of warmth, of being able to be sustained in some way. The context... The context is what makes all the difference. And that's what we're going to need to pay attention to today in our text, the context. Jesus is going to shout fire, and we have to to see the why, to work out the context and to work out what it is that he's getting at in, in making this. Now, make no mistake, I'm not trying to, to unnecessarily soften something. The tone is distinctly dark in this, in this text, it's just like last week's section. It's a warning. And it's a warning we want to pay attention to. But it's also incumbent on us to carefully read and consider this because people have gone to terrible places in their doctrines and practices based on either surfaced or isolated readings of this text. So we want to be cautious as we go through this. Hopefully I've provided enough caveats here that uh, we're prepared for this. So if you're there in Luke chapter 12, we're going to dive into our text. We're going to pick up where we left off. Last week, starting with verse 49, Jesus is still talking and he says, I have come to set the world on fire and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me and I'm under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me, two against, or two in favor and Three against pretty much any mathematical combination you want there. Uh, 
Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You can kind of get the picture. As I said, Jesus has just yelled fire. And now we got to unpack this and figure out the context and the meaning of this warning. Tragically, I would say all throughout history, the church has used these few lines from Luke to justify religious strife and intolerance and even holy wars. Uh, but, you know, is this Jesus saying burn, baby, burn, like at the Watts riots or the January 6th thing? Is Jesus really preaching jihad? Is that what this is about? Is his call for fire and division a rally cry for his followers to become militant in our practice of our faith? Is that what we think he's doing here? I see a few heads shaking no, so I'm glad. I'm glad you're here today. (laughs) If we were to lift these verses and, and isolate them from the rest of the word, we might get that impression based on what he's saying. But remember, all of Scripture has to be held in tension with all of Scripture. In other words, this all has to fit together. It has to be understood in relationship to Jesus' command to be peacemakers and his command for us to have love as our identifying marker as Christians. Whatever he's saying here, it cannot be saber-rattling in light of the rest of Scripture. So let's look at this. Jesus first speaks of setting the world on fire. Literally in the Greek, it's just saying, I bring fire to the earth. So what does that fire picture? That's something that draws a lot of interpretations uh, from it. Some connect it with the fires of judgment. Peter, in his epistle, talks about the world burning away in fire. Some, like N.T. Wright, uh, sees the fire as a forecast of Jerusalem's destruction by the Romans in 70 A.D., uh, he sees that as a warning against, you know, that demise. Others connect it with the fire that's already been used in Luke already. And that's interesting to me, especially since it, it references, Jesus references baptism here. And John the Baptist, back in, in, in Luke chapter 3, said that Jesus would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And there was a sense behind that, if we connect that even with the Old Testament prophets and Jeremiah 23, 29, this sense of, of uh, uh, a, a view of purification. That's more the idea that I'm, I lean towards. And when we connect it with the baptism of suffering that he talks about, this baptism of suffering, that cross that he went to, that cross that we just were talking about here as we celebrated communion, we see the source of that purification that he's talking about. So fire, I believe, you'll have to pray about this and consider it, I believe is representative of this this purifying word that comes through Christ. It's a way of saying something new is coming. You know, we're going to burn the old away and there's something new that's going to be here. But then shockingly, he says, I'm not here to bring peace, but divide people. So we're like, what? I mean, okay. Uh, which is it, Jesus, Prince of Peace or Duke of Division? Uh, why, why would he say this? This, I believe, gets to the heart of the section. I don't believe he's advocating for division, but he's describing the consequence that this burning truth he brings has, the consequence of this. When Jesus asks in this text, if we think he's come to bring peace on earth, he's really asking, did you think I was here just to protect the status quo? to just keep things running smoothly as they are? And the answer, of course, is no. That's not what the gospel's intent is. 
His presence in the world, God's presence is unsettling. And the prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah emphasize that it would be a time of disruption and division. It would be a time of upheaval. And honestly, that's what the gospel does. It brings upheaval. It brings upheaval in our lives. It brings upheaval in this world. So he's he's predicting the impact that his message of love is going to have on our self-centered human nature. Honestly, I like this because there's no hidden agenda here at all. He's come to turn the value system of this world on its head. And he knows that that process is not always going to be pretty. Because there's going to be plenty of people who don't want that to happen. And so this is the point. That identification with the gospel upheaval uh, comes at a cost. It's It's going to affect us in some way. We may be loving and peacemakers as we are called to be, but we can't control how other people respond to us. We can't control what someone else's reaction is. The message of God's kingdom and the whole new world does not sit well with people who like this world just the way it is. Thank you very much. So what Jesus is saying here is much like in Matthew 10, 37, if you love father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being my disciple. In other words, if it comes down to having to choose between identification with Christ and even a family member, we would choose Christ. That's that's a bold claim on our lives. But this is what he's saying here. Now, as I said, this is not Jesus encouraging us to divide from family or friends. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus. Now I got nothing to do with you. It's not that at all. Jesus isn't affirming or encouraging division, but he is naming the reality that was occurring all around him at that time. And he knows will continue to occur in a world in which Jesus becomes present. In the context that Luke was writing this gospel, many Jewish people were being cut off from their families because they'd accepted Christ as their savior. And, and, you know, it was a huge deal. And it still happens to this day in some families. I've known Jewish people who've been cut off from their families, even if for temporarily because of this commitment. There was an Islamic guy I knew who seemed persuaded by the gospel, but he made it clear that he wasn't going to become a Christian because he knew it would cost him his relationship with his family. Most of us have not seen those extreme kinds of uh, responses to our faith. But many of us have probably had friends who suddenly didn't want to hang out with us anymore once we've uh, taken up this this identification with Jesus. Friends who I had a friend I had friends that that actually literally thought that because of the the change in my life was so radical, just a flip upside down that they thought that I needed deprogramming. They were literally working on trying to get a van to get me and kidnap me and try to get me straightened out. So I mean. You know, we, we, we have suffered. Some of us have suffered those kinds of loss. Some of us have been mocked, you know, because we've now identified with this Jesus. Jesus is just letting us know this shouldn't be unexpected. This is the way things work in a world in which he is present. There's a polarizing effect in this. In this whole chapter, Jesus called us to give up religious pride. He told us to give up our desire for money and possessions, to find our security in God and be ready and waiting for him. And here he takes it about as far as this can go. He is saying, be willing to even let family go if it comes to it. He's pretty much cutting off 
all of those deep attachments that we can have to this broken world system. Now, I'm not saying family is a bad attachment, but I'm just saying these are the things that connect us strongly to the world system in which we're a part of. And if there becomes a conflict between a a choice between this world's system and what it is that Christ has called us to, he's making it clear, your loyalty goes to me. That's a... That's a tough one. That's why I don't, you know, people talk about cheap grace. I don't believe grace is cheap. The claim of the gospel is making on our lives is profound, but it's so worth it. And it's certainly not dependent on our ability to do this well, but we're recognizing in Jesus' words what what it means, how all-encompassing his claim on our lives is. And each one of us has to count the cost of that. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. But each one of us has to consider, is this the life I'm willing to live? As I said, it's well worth it. Well, we just keep moving uh, through this cheery section here. Verse 54. Then Jesus turned to the crowd. Again, notice Luke is always going to identify for us who the target audience is for Jesus. So he was talking to his disciples before based on the context we had. Now he's turning to the crowd, those who are just kind of hanging around Jesus. And he said, when you see clouds beginning to form in the West, you say, here comes a shower. And you're right. When a south wind blows, you say, today's going to be a scorcher. And it is. Too Fools, you know how to interpret the weather signs of earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. Okay, so so Rob, last week you said we shouldn't be sifting through current events, looking for signs of the times, but here Jesus said we should be doing that, so which is it? Who do we trust in this? Well, obviously trust Jesus, but there are two th- different things in view in these two different texts that we're looking at here. The last section was looking at being ready for some future event, the master's return, however we're going to understand that. And we put it in the context of what's to come, some end that is to come. And, and his instruction was to be ready and doing what we've been called to do, to love God and love others and be doing that when that time comes. But Jesus here is talking to the crowds who stand in for all of Israel and, and who have Messiah right in their midst, but they aren't comprehending it. So here, Jesus is rebuking them because they don't realize what's already begun, what's happening right under their noses, and they can't even see it taking place. And he's employing sarcasm here. You know, you, can, you guys can predict the weather as well as Jim Cantore, but they can't recognize the sun, S-O-N, when he appears in front of them. So the skill at reading weather indicators wasn't matched by a more important type of skill, reading the spiritual indicators in the air all around them, what was happening right in the present time. They couldn't decide about Messiah. Is he the Messiah or is he not? Even with the mountains of evidence piling up all around them. And as a whole, as a whole, the people of Israel missed Messiah when he showed up. So that's what this passage said. I mean, that's what it was saying to the people that he was with at that time. But what is it saying to us right now? How do we take this and apply this to our lives? What do we get from this? I believe it's a challenge to us that the gospel's present work in this world is something that we have to pay attention to. It requires our attention. Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom work in this world. 
through his ministry, through his teachings, through his death and resurrection. And that means Jesus is now always at work. God's kingdom is always active in this earth. Things are always going on that God is doing. So we're challenged to pay attention to see where God is working and join him in that. Henry Blackaby, do you know who that is? He's the author of a of a classic workbook, Experiencing God. I don't know if anybody's ever gone through that, but he had this wonderful quote in there. He said, see where God is working and join him in his work. If Christians around the world were to suddenly renounce their personal agendas, their life goals and their aspirations and begin responding in radical obedience to everything God showed them, the world would be turned upside down. How do we know? He said, because that's what the first century Christians did and the world is still talking about it. Sometimes joining God in his work where we see it is going to mean we're going to have to step outside of our comfort zones. Sometimes it means we're going to be flying in the face of tradition, the way things always had been done before. It's not going to contradict God's character or his values, but it may be doing things differently than the way we did them before. See, that was the problem of Jesus' time. They were so convinced that they knew what Messiah was going to be doing and how he was going to be doing it and how to interpret those prophecies that they just couldn't see God through Jesus. They couldn't see God at work through what Jesus was doing. They couldn't see through the framework of their traditions that they had piled up in front of them. It's like, have you ever uh, recorded something on your DVR, a show or something, and sometimes you'll get a little... Uh, blurb from the the news station, a weather forecast to get you interested in watching the, the news later that night. And so they'll put a quick little blurb, blurb of what the weather is going to be, you know, rain tomorrow, so be prepared, tune in, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to your show that you'd recorded. Uh, so have you ever been in one of those situations where you're watching something and you see that it's going to be raining tomorrow and think, oh, I got to be prepared for rain and then remember, oh, no, this was recorded a week ago. Uh, I don't have to worry about that now. But the people of Jesus' day were trying to respond to weather based on an old report. They were basing it on something that happened before and they weren't recognizing and seeing what God was doing in the present. They were stuck in their past interpretations and they weren't prepared for the way that God was at work in the present. God's work can be seen in so many ways, in so many places. And it's not always just confined to the four walls of a church. It's always just confined even to religious activities or behaviors. God is at work in this world. Honestly, the harder part for us is to try to figure out which things he particularly wants us to engage with because we've just expanded our horizons just a little bit by connecting with all these various churches in Bay County and the amount of ministry opportunities that are constantly unfolding in front of us are huge. I mean, it could get overwhelming. We have to start praying and seeking the Lord. What What do we want to do? Where do you want us? Uh, what particularly do you want us to be engaged with? And I'll say it doesn't always have to be big stuff either. Sensational things that God is doing, big, you know, happening deals. We get way, way too caught up in that mindset within our particular culture. God is at work in a million seemingly mundane things that are going on. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25. We simply give somebody something to eat when they're hungry or be kind to our fellow human being. Provide some some need for some need. Show kindness and care. We're doing it for him. In other words, this is God's activity in the world. This is God at work advancing his kingdom and his values in that sort of thing. 
That means that, that every encounter, every journey, every day becomes an opportunity to see what God is doing and join in. That's not even a bad prayer to pray at the outset of a day. Lord, I'm putting this day in front of you. And I want to see where you're working, what you're doing. And I want to join you there in it. Eugene Peterson talked about how when he would uh, get up in the mornings and he would face the day and he'd know there are a lot of things going on or whatever, he'd say, Lord, you, you told your disciples after the resurrection to meet you in Jerusalem, that you would meet them there. And so I know that today you are out there doing these things. I'll meet you there. I'll, I'll find you. I'll meet you and work with you today. What a great way to begin our day, to be prepared and, and anticipating the, the activity of God at work, doing good and, and, and helping and, and building up. Well, finishing up our text, let's read uh, verses 57 to 59. Jesus, still talking to the crowd, says, Why can't you decide for yourselves what's right? And right there, what he's saying to them, he's trying to make a distinction between what the religious leaders of the day have been promoting and telling them, and he's making his appeal directly to the people outside of their influence. Why can't you decide for yourselves what's right? When you're on your way to court with your accuser, try to settle the matter before you get there. Otherwise, your accuser may drag you before the judge who will hand you over to an officer who will throw you into prison. And if that happens, you won't be free again until you paid the very last penny. Okay, so this needs a little bit of historical context to understand what kind of imagery he's using here. In the ancient world, if a person didn't pay their tax debt, especially within the context of the Roman Empire, the Romans would throw them into what was called a debtor's prison until the bill was paid always struck me as an odd thing. How in the world are you supposed to pay the bill if you're stuck in prison? Uh, but the idea was that friends or family that cared about you would do what they needed to do, gather the resources in order to pay that off. In other words, they'd have to pay a ransom. They'd have to ransom you out of this situation. Jesus is using this as an illustration, but what's he illustrating? That's what's important for us to kind of get a hold of here. He's been describing a time when God's kingdom is making divisions among people, a time when people should be able to see what God is doing through Jesus. And here he's bringing it down, saying that at the time when Israel had better respond properly, or they're going to be nationally culpable for rejecting God's messenger. If they keep refusing God's way of bringing an end to exile, and remember, an end to exile is what salvation means. If you keep rejecting God's way of ending exile and bringing salvation, then exile will continue and actually get worse. And of course, we see how that all played out historically for Israel in the events that happened in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and raised the temple to the ground. That's the first application I think that we would make from that. But it has present implications as well. The idea is there's one way out of exile. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't neglect that. Don't reject that. Don't take that for granted. There's only one way out of our bondage to sin and its consequences, and that is through Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, when he came to Corinth, he said, there's only one thing that I know for sure around you dudes. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That didn't mean that, you know, if somebody came and asked him, you know, what's the weather going to be? He'd say, Jesus Christ, I'm crucified. I won't talk about anything else. He's not saying that. He's saying there's only one thing that's supremely important to me and, and important to my and your eternity. 
And that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is our only means of escaping the consequence of sin. Well, duh, Rob. I mean, why do you think we're here? I, I know you know that, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded of it. Because as the church, I'm just saying in the long history of the church, we have a long history of forgetting this truth. Because how many times have we added to the gospel, believe on Jesus and do enough good to level things out, believe on Jesus and be religious and respectable and given the offering, be careful to hide your flaws, believe on Jesus and vote for the proper political party at election times. There's only one way that we come out of exile from sin and find reconciliation with God. Only one way that has been revealed to us through this word that our sins are forgiven and removed. Only one way for us to receive eternal life, and that's through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection on our behalf, what we celebrated this morning in communion. He is our ransom. We were held in the tension and the consequence of sin, in the bondage to that. He was the one who became our ransom, to deliver it from us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our pathway to escape the ruin of sin. That's why our loyalties go to him and him alone. That's why he claims our highest loyalty. That's why, because if it becomes a choice between a family member and and Jesus, we choose Jesus and trust him with our family because only he is providing us that means of escape. There are so many rally cries in the world right now. And I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm sure it's always been that way, but boy, I'll tell you right now, I guess maybe with in concert with increases in technology and communication, the rally cries are everywhere and constant. It's a barrage constantly. So many causes, so many creeds to get behind. Our present-day church in my lifetime has taken up so many battles that often have nothing to do with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Petty petty political agendas that end up superseding the core of what the gospel is all about, of laying our lives down for others. So many hills to die on. But to paraphrase the quote, I am determined I will not die on any hill that doesn't look like Calvary. I will not do it because there is no other hill that can save me. There is no other hill that set me free. There's no other place that offers me this kind of salvation and life. The gospel is our means of ending exile, exile from God. The gospel is our means of reconciliation with our creator, of coming into the full meaning of who we are, of finding value and purpose in this life and of the hope of eternal life, a life that never ends. So let's count the cost of identifying with Jesus. Let's look for where God is at work in our world today and join him in this activity of bringing good into this world. And let's always keep the main thing, the main thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified as our only hope of salvation, as our supreme cause that we rally around. Right on? All right. Very cool.
Will you stand with me, please? Father, we just invite your presence here today. Lord, we read your word, and sometimes as we're reading these things that Jesus said, it doesn't leave us all warm and fuzzy, but that's all right, because it leaves us with a sense of stability. We heard you, Lord. We heard you shout this morning, fire. Help us to make the right response to that. Help us to recognize that when you say this, you're not, you're not stirring us up to try to uh, get out of here, but you're drawing us towards that one thing which can sustain us and preserve us. Help us to be your people, Father. Help us to be a people that rightly represents you in this world. We pray that you do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.